This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. How will this week go with Justin Trudeau and China? I'm really curious about this one. Um, I, I think this is only going to be a bigger story over the next month. It's not going to stay the same story. So I know many times and many people have said, well, this is what Justin Trudeau and the liberals are able to do. They're able to run out the clock to where we get distracted by something else. Big, big issue comes up and they're able to move the, the public structure away from what the focus should be, which should be this story. And I, I would have said this last week, so I'm not revising my thoughts on this. Um, and every government, by the way, is going to have what, the, what might be deemed by someone else as scandals. Like, I don't, I don't, there's certainly moments in, in uh, Stephen Harper's run. There's moments in the Cretchen to Martin run where you'd go, whoa, did you hear what happened with the federal government? That's scandalous. And provincial governments obviously have that too. Um, this one feels like if this isn't the one that takes him down, nothing will. And I don't expect a resignation. I'm not anticipating that. And I'm not suggesting that's in the cards or that's even been discussed. But if you survive this far into things, like almost eight calendar years into being prime minister, and the idea that CSIS alleging that you ignored their warnings of foreign interference during two different elections, and you turned a blind eye to efforts by the Chinese government, who, who don't have our best interests at heart, they only have theirs, to help elect certain candidates. And there's only been the one candidate named so far, Liberal Party um, MP Han Dong. But there's also 10 other Beijing-funded candidates, not all of which may be liberals. Then if this doesn't take you out, nothing will. Nothing will. There have been other ones, that's for sure. But you don't have to tell me that you were as focused in on SNC-Lavalin, okay? They found that the ethics commissioner found that Justin Trudeau had put undue pressure. It's the best way I can put it on, on Jody Wilson-Raybould into, you know, basically, you know, being light on the prosecution agreement. She was the attorney general at that point in time. Then there's We Charity. But as I always point out, so the Kielberger brothers run this. They're well-connected. They've given money to the Trudeaus before. The Trudeau family benefits from showing up at promotional events. Nah, like it's something, but it wasn't going to be the be-all and end-all of scandals. And we were pretty busy in the summer of 2020, dodging and weaving through the first several months of, of COVID. So um, there were always excuses offered by Justin Trudeau, and he offered up certain sacrificial lambs. When you lose your finance minister over We Charity and Bill Morneau is gone, not just as finance minister, but, but as an MP, it's something. But I'm curious where you think. You can let us know via text, by the way. We'll take calls on it after 8 o'clock. But I think this will be bigger a month from now than it is right now. I don't know how it couldn't be. I, and the other ones I wouldn't have said that about. I think we sort of had a peak SNC-Lavalin moment. And we had a peak we, we, we just, uh, charity moment. I think we had a peak Aga Khan moment. I think we had a peak traveling to India moment. I, but I don't think this has peaked yet. You tell me if you agree or disagree. 416-870-6400. Marco Mendicino appeared with uh, Eric Sorensen, who I think is awesome. You may have heard me say before. He was the news guy in London, Ontario for years and years and years before leaving London. But he, I think he's the best news anchor London and reporter London's ever had. 
prior to since. So I got a soft spot for Eric Sorensen. I grew up watching his brand of journalism. He did his best with Marco Mendicino to get answers um, and, and did his best to pin him down on this. So here's an exchange that Eric Sorensen in for Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block. Here's him asking him about electoral interference and um, and what, what Marco Mendicino thought of it. You're not answering sort of simple questions, not about the details, but just about awareness. Um, you know, the, the House and Procedures Affairs Committee, for example, wants to ask Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, some questions. The Liberals are filibustering that. They're just time and again, the, your party, your government seems to be kind of blocking information about the most simple things. And it looks bad. Do you, do you see how it looks bad? Well, I, I would reassure you and your viewers that we understand that Canadians do have questions. And that's why we have sent uh, our top officials to uh, the Parliamentary Committee. Uh, earlier uh, last week, we heard from Minister Jolie and Minister LeBlanc to speak before the Parliamentary Committee on this very subject. Um, if I'm invited, of course, I will be happy to go and uh, talk about the important work that we are doing in public safety because it is important that we explain to Canadians how it is that we are putting in place the measures that our agencies use to address and mitigate. Okay, not much of an answer there, but you heard the question from Sorensen. Don't you see how this looks bad? I could twist the words around. Don't you see how bad this looks? And you're not going to get much from Marco Mendocino in that capacity. Now, also, and we're this is our first show since Friday afternoon when this started to break. We didn't even get a shot at it on Friday morning. But the idea of a conservative MPP getting named in these allegations, Global News has named an MPP as being part of China's election interference, and he's out already. Like, this didn't take a week. It didn't take two weeks. It didn't even take 12 hours. PC MPP Vincent Key was alleged to be the Queen's Park connection and helped funnel and law and funnel money uh, to federal candidates in the GTA. Now, Key says he's being wrong. Key says that didn't happen. Key's in the same Don Valley North constituency as Liberal MP Han Dong. I mean, we should have been able to put this together, and many people did, but until you've got the reporting and it's sourced and it's it's been vetted and it makes practical sense, which it obviously does given the geography involved, um, there was nothing you could say. Key's denied this multiple times, and he was asked this as recently as last November if, if he was involved in any way with the Chinese consulate. Here's what the conservatives did, and Doug Ford had a really good week. He had a really good finish to the week. There were a couple education things with the tech credits and the new courses that a lot of people really, really liked. And opposition parties in the province didn't even get a chance. They didn't get a chance on Friday to demand he even banish the PC MPP. Snap of a finger, he's out. Now, he might still vote with the conservatives every time, and I don't, but I don't think there's a way back it, once these things are proven. If I'm going to lay this out and say this is a bigger story in a month than it is right now, um, then I can't really say, well, I think there's a way for him to slowly work his way back into the conservative caucus. I don't think that. I don't think that, and I know it's a long time until there's another, um, another Ontario election. But this was done within hours. So, by the way, also, the Ontario Liberals, without a leader right now, can't demand something in province that they won't demand in Ottawa. And the NDP MPPs, Smart Styles, they can't even call out the specter of election interference when their guy in Ottawa won't put his money where his mouth is and put the supply and confidence agreement on the table. So, Doug Ford, big touchdown on Friday, kicking out 
a caucus member that looks to have been involved in this interference. And he did it really quickly. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. There's no sign of a return to work for a Supreme Court justice. We told you about this Friday and nobody knew anything about it on Friday. And then the actual Supreme Court justice spoke on like he released a statement on Friday afternoon. Russell Brown is a Supreme Court justice with Canada. I know, I know, you didn't know that, and neither did I. But he uh, was in Arizona at a, a big-time resort and spa in Scottsdale. I was just in Arizona, but I you only go to Scottsdale for dinner. We can't afford hotel rooms in Scottsdale with the BBC. Are you kidding? So we're um, in Scottsdale where Justice Brown was. He um, is introducing an award. He's giving an award to... Um, uh, Louise Arbor, also a former Supreme Court justice. And the award is named after Sandra Day O'Connor, who became the first U.S. Supreme Court justice. She was appointed by Ronald Reagan. It was quite a groundbreaking moment in the early 80s. Um, but somehow, some way, the evening went awry, and the 57-year-old justice went to a lounge in the hotel with some guests. Now, here's what we know since I last spoke to you on Saturday, or Friday. A 31-year-old former Marine named John Crump um, assaulted Justice Brown. It's 26-year age difference. And um, Crump is the one who called the police. And there's body cam footage that's been released of it. This is the difference, by the way, between police in the United States and Canada. Think what you will, say what you will about police, the policing industry, cops, whatever. You can get info and validity and verification and backup for for your stories way faster in the United States than you can here. You ask for body footage in Canada, not a chance. So Mr. Crump's account, per the Vancouver Sun, is Brown was drinking, bragging, and making the women at the table uncomfortable. Brown followed the group to their room, and Crump said, you're drunk, you're being obnoxious, Justice Brown shoved him. Crump and his response was to punch the Supreme Court Justice of Canada twice in the face. Brown fell down. I think we'd all get, I think we'd all fall down if we got hit by a 31-year-old ex-Marine. I'm just, I'm stereotyping, but that's a, that's a, I'm confident that Marine could punch me in the face twice and I'd go down, especially if I'm intoxicated and obnoxious. And I'm never both at the same time. So then Crump is the one who calls the police and reports Justice Brown. He, he, Mike Tyson, the guy, and then he's the one that calls the cops. Police showed up, pfft, wasted their time. They decided not to lay a charge. Brown says Crump's account is false. So in the case of Brown v. Crump, it's really, really interesting. Like, this is where I'm at. You're a Supreme Court Justice of Canada. You say you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. But a guy... With his girlfriend, you're not a, you're not on public transit. You're not out walking down an alleyway. You're not getting jumped by a gang of five dudes at one in the morning. We all have to pick our spots with where we want to walk and where we want to be. We all know when we might be in some physical trouble. You get out of there. That's not what this is. A dude, I assume, you know, 31-year-old Marine, fit, I'm just thinking, with his girlfriend and another couple, you're in mixed company, and he feels the need to punch you in the face. Did I remind you you're a Supreme Court justice? You are. And he punches you in the face twice after you join them for drinks and try and follow them down the hallway 
to their rooms. So you know about laws and stuff. But he calls the police, not you. So you don't press any charges. You know the law better than the 31-year-old Marine. He's got a better uh, right hook, but you know laws. <laughs> okay? You don't press any charges. You were assaulted consistently, allegedly, by the guy. You, you, don't, you don't want the cops involved. You're 57, and you just got blown up by a 31-year-old that you were sitting with totally harmlessly. You're an innocent bystander, and he goes pop, pop, right in the face. You now say you can't wait to be vindicated six weeks later. Well, the cops showing up would have vindicated you, but you didn't call them. You didn't say anything about this since that period of time, and you've been sitting at home getting paid by us, and and you're not coming back to work anytime soon should you really be on the Supreme Court of Canada knowing all this. And I don't know who makes that call. Like, you know what happens in the States. Supreme Court of uh, a Supreme Court uh, justice in the United States would have to, I think, be convicted of a crime or die. And then all of a sudden you're not on the Supreme Court of the United States. This one fascinates me. You know, you know the law. And he punched you in the face a bunch of times. And you didn't call the cops. And you didn't want to press any charges. And now you say, I can't wait for the truth to come out. I can't wait. To, you, the truth could have come out that night by call, by dialing 911. But the other guy called 911 who hit you twice in the face. <laughs> like it makes no sense. It makes no sense. None whatsoever. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We bring on our next guest, uh, Beaches East York, uh, MP in the federal government for the federal liberals, uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. You gave a shout out to Sarah Polly last night. There's a great Torontonian, very inspirational person. My sister was a big Road to Avonlea fan. And so Sundays <laughs> growing up, we'd, we'd, we'd all sit in front of the TV together watching. And so, yeah, I kind of I kind of grew up with Sarah Polly. Did you fuss a little bit? Like, I, I I would come home, and it would be on, and it'd be like, ah, it's Sunday night, there's an NFL game. I would have come home from university from Western, <laughs> try and watch an NFL game with my dad, and then be like, listen, you can you can sit in the big room once Rodav and Lee is over. Everyone's sister, yours, mine, they all watched Rodav and Lee for about six years straight. And there's only one screen in the house, unlike today, where my, my, my six-year-old, if he, if he doesn't like what's on the television, he's like, Daddy, can I have your phone? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you had to watch it. And look, you, I, was, I was cheering visibly when I saw Sarah Polly win because, you know, you, you grew up with these Canadians. It, it was great she won, um, and uh, she's been through the ringer. I hope she will act again someday, but she's uh, she's killing it in terms of uh, directing it. Um, she's got this relationship with Margaret Atwood that's been amazingly productive as well uh, with adapting some of Margaret Atwood's lesser-known works, so uh, pretty amazing. All right, it's our first chance to chat since uh, your visit to the Ontario Liberal Party's annual general meeting. Hamilton, big snowstorm on the Friday night. That didn't slow down the proceedings. You talked about uh, the Liberals going one member, one vote. Give us some other impressions of you being there. And people obviously had a lot of questions for you while you were there. The first impression was, despite the snowstorm, it was a huge gathering. It was almost 1,500 delegates. There's a lot of positive energy. I think a lot of momentum to build off of. And we went in, as you say, wanting to change how we elect the leader. We went in wanting to see more grassroots accountability. We went in saying we need to rebuild this party in every corner of the province and, and have small measures put in, like a rural and northern commission. And every single one of those changes went through. So 
I'm very optimistic about the future of the party. And as I say, we just need to build on that momentum. I often think people need to acknowledge that there is an issue before they can tackle that issue. And I, I know in the day or two afterwards, uh, past an election, there's a little bit of a fog of war for candidates that didn't do well or parties that didn't do well. So I didn't hear that quite as much. And I don't expect to on June 3rd or June 4th. I feel like there's more acknowledgement of of missteps now and you can't focus on them you have to focus on the present and the future was there more of that from what you saw because what i heard on june 3rd or 4th was well things happened well we increased our popular vote well you know more people voted for us than the ndp you know what the game the game isn't shots on goal the game is goals and the game is seats in parliament that's what it is Agreed. And, and my message over the weekend was we need to rebuild the party everywhere. And that includes Northern Ontario. That includes Southwestern Ontario and rural Ontario. My father-in-law in Lambton County will say the party gave up on us before we gave up on the party. And we started seeing staffers that were around at the very last minute. And we want to see candidates from our community who are strong voices for our community. So we need to get back to basics in that way. And then the other message I think has to be we are not the not Doug Ford party, that we stand for something. We stand for competence, compassion, integrity, and we can't cede an economic agenda and fiscal discipline to conservatives, just as we can't cede fairness, compassion for those in need to the NDP. We can do both, and and we we can do so with integrity. And if we deliver on those core values and then speak to common issues all across Ontario, access to primary care, mental health and addictions, housing affordability, affordability writ large, I think we're going to be very successful in rebuilding this party. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Timing, I know we've talked about it before. Uh, Was there more sense with you leaving Hamilton last weekend that a a leader could be chosen within this calendar year? You've documented, and you're not the only one that says, we really do need maybe the the full 24 months of 24 and 25 to get everything in line uh, to go to battle in the spring of 26 at the next election. I've been clear that there's no time to waste. We are in third place. We don't have official party status. We need a new leader, and we, and we can't set that new leader up for failure. So I would argue that new leader needs at least two years to become election-ready. And election-ready, it doesn't mean June 2026 in the midst of an election. It means January 1st, 2026, six months lead-up to the election. Now, I think I'm joined now by other potential contestants in saying the very same thing. And there's a growing list of people who are exploring this now, including three in the current caucus. So I, I'm optimistic we're going to see this thing announced before the end of the year. And the new executive we just elected is going to set down that timeline. And I hope they'll set it down soon. All right. Last two weeks ago, we talked about um, the concept of looking into uh, Chinese election and foreign interference, Chinese election interference and foreign interference in 21 and 19. We've learned a lot since then. Last week, the prime minister said he'd appoint a, a quote, eminent Canadian to the position of special rapporteur. Um, from your perspective, is this enough? Is it moving fast enough? Because clearly the public does want to know more. The prime minister acknowledged that himself on Thursday saying, I know there's more of an appetite. Maybe, and he wouldn't quite say it, but maybe even that he'd forecast the week prior. What do we need to do? And are we on somewhat of a right track to doing it? Well, it's interesting because when we spoke two weeks ago, there have been no measures announced. And we were talking about the need for a credible, trusted inquiry and something over and above just this, the parliamentary inquiry that, that had begun. Well, since then, so a week ago, the prime minister announced measures to say there's going to be a special committee investigation via the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians. There's going to be another committee inquiry via standing or institution, but there's going to be this special rapporteur, this eminent Canadian that's going to, And 
this is, I think, a smart thing to do, ultimately, to say Canadians, conservatives, non-conservatives, some people aren't going to trust in what the prime minister announces if he announces his own process. Here's going to be a third independent party that's going to look at the lay of the land, look at the existing processes and say, you know what, we do need a public inquiry on top or, or this other alternative process on top. So I think that's good. My complaint right now is, so show us your hand. Let, let's see. Let's get this going. Who, who's the eminent Canadian? And, and there's no time to waste. We're, we're the drip drip of information through the media is incredibly frustrating. So there's there's no time to waste on let's let's get going. I'd make the point as well, and I want to know if you'd concur that nobody nobody wins. We have only losers, no winners when we get, I guess what I would call is a breach between politicians, um, those the, those lawmakers like yourself, and our top security services. I, uh, we don't have to have CSIS. This is like politics. CSIS and, and uh, our political bodies and entities don't have to agree on everything. They don't have to agree on process. They don't have to uh, all sit at the same table and raise their hand at the same time. But we can't have we can't have troubling tension, and I worry we're there right now. I think this has to be quelled. I think this has to be fixed to some extent. And like you said about the the idea of, of looking into this sooner rather than later, it's for the for the sake of our country and our security. Right, and you mentioned trust between security agencies and elected officials and and, and public officials. I would also say trust is everything, as between citizens and the governments that they elect. And here we have a situation where you have allegations against certain, not the government, but mm-hmm. but certain candidates, both in the Liberal Party and, and the Federal Party, uh, in the Conservative Party federally. But but also we saw some uh, uh, a named Conservative MPP. And so we really have to get to the bottom of this so people have trust in our provincial elections and federal elections. And they trust that action is being taken at all levels in a really serious, coordinated way to make sure we stamp out these these threats. Um, you got uh, shouted out by Chris Selly in the National Post uh, about Bill 293, uh, C-293, and I wanted to bring it up again. We've seen a lot of, I don't know, media coverage, I guess, about, well, it's the third year anniversary of the pandemic, and this is what we got right, this is what we got wrong. But um, this is a private member's bill that's had second reading. What's the timeline to, again, you know, move this forward and, and get action on it? So we're going to see the bill go to the Health Committee in the coming weeks, and I'm, I'm hoping within the next four to six weeks. We'll, we'll, we'll see how their schedule looks like, but certainly I see it coming out of the health committee before we rise in June. And so they really do have to get going on it. It's, it's, a, it's more substantive, I would say, than, than a typical private member's bill that mm-hmm. makes a small tweak. This is asking to put a, a, a real serious architecture in place where the government would have to report every three years to parliament and update that plan every three years to parliament to make sure it never falls off the agenda. Uh, prevention and preparedness plan in relation to pandemics. And we can debate, you know, what worked, what didn't work. I, I think we want to depoliticize this and say, let's make sure there's just an ongoing accountability function so that no government ever forgets the real tragedy and the real cost of a pandemic and that preventing and preparing for a pandemic costs much less, not only economically, but also at a human scale. I haven't asked you this before, but how much buy-in do you need from the provinces on this? Um, you, you'd need to know about ICU beds per capita. Uh, PPE was yeah. was shocking for all of us to say, well, I'm sure we have some, and then it, it, I'm sure we have enough, and then it turned out we did not. Um, so w- the provinces really have to provide you data sets every year to give a sense as to where we are and make sure we're not lagging or we haven't cut funding to really important things for a next time. And this was a challenge we saw in our own pandemic response these last number of years, that 
the challenge of our response was a challenge of federalism. You have the Public Health Agency of Canada that is delivering one message. You have chief medical officers of health at the provincial level that are delivering different messages and sometimes different messages and sometimes different plans. And one thing that this proposal could bring to the fore would be a greater element of coordination and cooperation in advance and to make sure that they are running simulation exercises as between federal and provincial authorities so they understand where the jurisdictional gaps are and the challenges are. And, and you're exactly right. To make this work, it's not just going to take the federal government. It's going to take all levels of government. The nice thing is we have a parallel track with respect to tackling climate change, and we have a climate accountability law that does something very similar, requiring the federal government to table plans in Parliament, and that too requires federal and provincial cooperation. So I don't think this is unique, but but that cooperation is essential. Nate, thanks so much for the time this morning. I know daylight savings time has a uh, horrific effect on young children. I'm going <laughs> to let you go deal with your household on this Monday, even though they don't go to school. It still has an after. It still has some ripple effects. So I'll let you go and deal with it. And we'll talk yeah, soon. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Nate Erskine-Smith joining us, uh, Liberal MP for Beaches, East York. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. If you missed it, a big, big win for Toronto's Sarah Pauly last night. This is how she sounded when she won for Best Adapted Screenplay for the film Women Talking. I just want to um, thank the Academy for not being mortally offended by the words women and talking, but so close together like that. <laughs> Cheers. Um... Miriam Taves wrote an essential novel about a radical act of democracy in which people who don't agree on every single issue manage to sit together in a room and carve out a way forward together free of violence. (laughs) They do so not just by talking, but also by listening. The last line of our film is delivered by a young woman to a new baby, and she says, your story will be different from ours. It's a promise, a commitment, and an anchor, and it's what I would like to say with all of my might to my three incredible kids, Eve, Isla, and Amy, as they make their way through this complicated, beautiful world. Sarah Polly winning last night. She made, um, she said two amazing revelations that I think we'd all say, would I tell this to the public and let them judge, or would I keep this to myself? She found out in 2007, her dad who had raised her was not her biological father. Her mother had Um, stepped out on her marriage, and the biological father was chronicled in a documentary film called Stories We Tell. And then just last year, she said she'd been one of many who'd been sexually assaulted by Jan Gameshi, then the Moxie Fruvis singer. We all know that notorious case with all those accusations and allegations on a date when she was 16 and he was 28. Um, It takes tremendous courage uh, to step in front of a microphone and say those things. A fellow Torontonian uh, took notice of her win last night. Uh, She is author and entrepreneur Rachel Sklar, and she's back on Toronto Today this morning. What a hero, Sarah Pauly, and I bet you were were probably a Rhode Avonlea household growing up. It feels pretty unanimous this morning that every household was a Rhode Avonlea household. I mean, every household was a Sarah Pauly household. She was ubiquitous. And it is, it really just felt wonderful, really felt wonderful to see that. And then, but also, if I may, to hear her, mm-hmm. to hear that woman talking and saying out loud, forcing the entire world and certainly the industry to hear her talk about women talking and about the promise to her daughters about doing better. And I know that resonated with women, and I know that resonated with moms, not just me, obviously, but but I've seen it. Like I saw it explode on social media, and of course, there's the whole underlying issue of how an incredible film like Women Talking could exist without a director. Weird. 
So there's um there's that piece too, the fact that she was not nominated for Best Director. However, the 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 adapted screenplay win um I'm, it sure feels sweet and certainly was sweet to see her up there. And and I wonder, you know, you're a, you've got this lens of knowing her from Toronto, knowing how Canada centric she's been, but you've lived in New York City a long time. How well known is Sarah Pauly in American film circles? How well will she get to be known for now? I hope being able to make any movie she wants anytime she wants based on on what she's accomplished. I mean, she should be able to make any movie she wants. Anytime she wants, uh, the practicalities of the industry are such that the pathways for people who are traditionally underrepresented uh, on the Academy stage and in the Academy nominations tend to be less, you know, less, less um, um, greased mm-hmm. <laughs> going mm-hmm. forward. But that said, I mean, it is really it feels like every year we're in a moment. But this year we were really in a moment um, of acknowledgement. And it, it felt like a hard one acknowledgement, but there, but just the fact that the the stories being told are not only from the viewpoint of the the traditional default setting in the, the American cinema history, which has been the default male gaze and default male perspective, um, and so there's an appetite for it. There's a huge appetite for it. There's a huge audience for it. And Sarah Polly is one heck of a storyteller. She's done it her whole life. So um, there's there's a lot more to come from her. I think we're also getting to the point, I hope, um, where I, I look, this is me saying this, and maybe I can say this as a male, but I, I just love good cinema. And yet when Catherine Bigelow directs something, I can recognize her touch. Jodie Foster has been making great movies, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera for freaking 40 years now. Penny Marshall was this Nora Ephron. Like, I think we're, are we getting to the point where women are seeing a lot more of their stories on there and they're being told by women instead of adapted by men? Well, you just dropped a lot of names from like <laughs> a while ago, right? So this, the pace of this progress is low. And I like this, I would say women, women are impatient. I have this woman right here is impatient. Sarah Polly is impatient. She, wa- she wasn't making safe stories. The, w- w- women talking was not a safe story to make in terms of like, wow, there's going to be a stampede to the theater. Uh, on the contrary, I mean, par- part of the story of this film is the title, which is why when she got up there, it was the first thing she said, which was, you know, like uh, mock thanking the Academy for not you know, being put off by having the words women and talking so close together. Because the the, the history, I, I mean, I've, I've seen sort of the ongoing coverage of just the how wearisome it was getting for her and for uh, people involved in the film to, you know, hear, hear dumb jokes about the title, like women talking, blah, whatever. I mean, we all know what the response is from the, let's say, the less evolved. But the reality is that Sarah Polly went out and made a film that was radically centered on women and their perspective and, and their agency in setting their own, the course of their own lives for themselves and for their daughters in the face of horrific abuse and injustice. And th- I mean, you, you can't tell me in 2023 that's not resonating. Now, it may not be resonating for 
certain cohorts of the population, certain men, right? But it is resonating for a lot of women who are looking around and and seeing the incursions on freedom, on rights for women and for, you know, like trans kids and like all of the groups that are being attacked right now. I mean, I'm my perspective is one of being in the United States, but these culture wars are everywhere. And I know they're also in Canada. Well, uh, I'm I'm just the battle to have a legal abortion is something, as you know, in in our country, I don't think will ever be on the table again. And it's very much on the table and was on the ballot last election. And sadly, maybe for every election to come. I want to know. how it, We got a minute, but I want to know how the movie made you feel. What, what did you think after it, it wrapped? What, what did it do for you emotionally? I mean, it, it's a journey. It's not a it's not a feel good film in the sense of like you really have to reckon with. What what happened? The, the the abuse of trust and like you know the 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 betrayal of your community of of the the people that are supposed to keep you safe. Um and but really I mean it's just so inspiring in terms of uh, watching it play out and yeah like I, like not to belabor a point but women talking is also women doing like, women moving forward and. Uh, and so it's it's hard not to watch that and not sort of feel the echo of all the the sort of struggles that that mm. <laughs> like are very aware of happening in the past and and mm. and not feel a little weary but also hopeful about the struggles you know to to move forward and and do better and that is I mean I think that that is the message of the movie and that was certainly Sarah Pauli's message last night on well, the Oscar stage. Well, Sarah is so cool, very Toronto, and, and we emoted in our oh, household, cool. and I know you emoted from uh, another country away about how awesome it was to see somebody we kind of grew up with and watched um, grow up, get better, mature, and, and be really important, win such a, a prestigious thing. Um, thank you for the time this morning. It was great to reconnect, and we'll talk really soon. Thank you, Greg. Take care. Rachel Sklar joining us from New York City. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I said it. I meant it. I I watched more of the Oscars than I thought that I would, which was great. It was busy. The Last of Us uh, season finale being on kind of conflicted with that, but flipped it over at 10 o'clock. I get to see Sarah Pauly win. I did stay up. Uh, for Brendan Fraser's uh, speech as he won Best Actor. Um, a great text question from the uh, listeners. Has anyone, well, it's only happened three times, but when was the last time uh, a film won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Picture? And obviously, Brendan Fraser stepped in the way and prevented uh, everything, everywhere, all at once from doing that. But Silence of the Lambs, last one. So that's Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and then the movie won for Best Picture. Um, but I love the Oscars. I thought they got back to some fun last night. They put last year's incident aside, and obviously the two COVID years. It wasn't a very fun ceremony to watch. I think we got back to it last night, regardless of what worked and what didn't. You'll be able to catch up on all of it on ET Canada tonight. We're very happy to have on ET Canada reporter Morgan Hoffman uh, to share thoughts. Morgan, it's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. And I completely agree with you. It was fun last night. It made me think it was Oscars of past at least five, ten years ago. It felt really kind of a classic show. Yeah, everybody. So there's no dinner tables. There's no separation. Um, You could tell when Kimmel goes through the audience, everyone's going, please don't. It's like a stand up comic. Don't talk to me. Please don't talk. (laughs) Nicole Kidman made that face at one point. And I'm like, she means it. She means like, do not come up. I've done nothing prepared. Don't ask me a question. Right. 
Yes, it was so funny. And, you know, he called people out in the audience in terms of, uh, you know, don't mess with anyone on stage. And there's this moment where Andrew Garfield gives this look and everyone's talking about that. So, yeah, I thought uh, I thought for his monologue and addressing the Will Smith slap from last year, I thought he actually did a pretty good job. Yeah, it was it was something really to, to move past at a, at a certain point in time. And they did a very Toronto centric Oscars. Very cool to see yeah. Brendan Fraser win for best actor. And we just chatted uh, with uh, with a great guest about Sarah. Sarah Pauly winning for Women Talking. I was I was just thrilled because we all feel like we've grown up with Sarah Pauly in Canada. She's oh. always been omnipresent. She's been through some stuff and persevered. And you, yeah. it's a great lesson. Get knocked down. Bad things happen. Get back up. Um, and Sarah Pauly made a great film with Women Talking and justly rewarded. Oh, absolutely. What a moment. I mean, it's so interesting because certain films will dominate award season. And although... We're so proud of this film mm-hmm. and, you know, the subject matter focusing on women talking is so important. I felt like not everyone was talking about it. So I love that it has shone an even bigger spotlight with her winning this. And what does this mean for her future? What doors are going to open even more now after winning this award? So it was just, I think, to your point, we grew up watching her. We're so proud of her. I wish she'd been nominated for Best Director, but that's just me. Yeah. I will take Adapted Screenplay. I'm very happy for her. <laughs> I think you know, too. Like you, If you make a film or you, you put a film out there um, and, and dangle that, that line into the water and Francis McDormand wants to be in your film and Claire <laughs> Foy and Rooney Mara, that's, that's, oh, that's yeah. all you need. Like You wouldn't sleep on those nights. You'd be so ex- jumping off the wall that, that those three amazing actresses all want, all want part of what you're selling them. Right. It's so funny. I was just telling my sister, I'm like, do you know who is in this movie? These are some of the biggest uh, uh, actresses, the most talented women. So I'm just so happy uh, for her. And yeah, I I, I just, yeah, I can't wait to see what she's going to do next. Where does the career go for Brendan Fraser now? It's such an interesting question. I'm sure that's almost like a, that's a standard ET Canada question tonight because it could go anywhere. Now you've you've got some, uh, you've got some, you know, money in the bank in terms of being an investment, but I I would hate for people to see this as a one-off. He did a very unique character in a very different role. So is he going back to doing a lot of the comedy he did? Is he just Mr. (laughs) Serious from this point on? It's anybody's guess. That is actually such a great question. I think, too, I was just happy because it was really coming down to if Brendan Fraser was going to take this or Austin Butler for Elvis, mm. and both performances are great. But for me, the Renaissance, we've all been talking about this. This is the <laughs> ultimate comeback. Uh, I-, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. I think, you know, we grew up watching him. Well, I did. And Encino Man and George of the Jungle and The Mummy. And those films are all amazing and for their time. But I didn't quite know he could carry a film quite like he did in The Whale. So for me, yes, I'd love to see him go back and do some funny stuff, but I want to see what else he can do uh, in a dramatic sense because I honestly didn't know he had those acting chops. So uh, I think this will open doors for him in terms of everyone's going to want to work with him. And it's just such an exciting time for him as well. So I'm pumped. Anything else you love seeing? Uh, I'm more a speech person than some other people are. That's uh, We were arguing about this Friday. I like actually wedding speeches, and some people roll their eyes and go, oh, it's the worst part. But I love seeing what people are going to say on the spot. Anything else that you really love seeing? I just love seeing Michelle Yeoh. The fact that she's the first Asian woman who won Best Actress at the Oscars, and she said, women out there, you know, if anyone says you're past your prime, don't listen to them. I thought that speech was amazing. <laughs> uh 
Kiwei Kwan, the fact that he won Best Supporting uh, Actor was so emotional, thinking his mom was watching at home. So all of those speeches were great. I also loved some of the performances, Rihanna singing Lift Me Up. I thought that was a, a showstopper and Lady Gaga with no makeup. So it just felt like big names were there, big performances, and Everything Everywhere All at Once is a sci-fi movie with different dimensions. And 10 years ago, that would have never been considered at the Oscars. And the fact that a sci-fi film in, in that respect took home all the big prizes. I was just so excited. Morgan Hoffman, our guest, ET Canada reporter. It's so funny you talked about that because um, I'm a, I am was an 80s kid, big Talking Heads fan. So David Byrne comes on stage to do the song. Right. And my wife and I are watching with like the hot dog fingers and we're both like, we haven't seen the movie yet. So we're like, what? He's weird anyway. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's eccentric. So we're like, is this just part of him being him? But then we realized that was no. actually part of the movie, which was even more creative for David Byrne to do that. Yes, I'm telling you, and I say this is the greatest heart. It is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life, but I was also in tears when I walked out, so I highly recommend it. We'll be watching tonight. ET Canada, 7 o'clock on Global. Morgan, thanks for doing this. I hope we can, uh, we can do this more often. I appreciate you getting up early for us. Yes, thank you so much. You bet. Uh, we'll be watching ET Canada tonight, right after uh, the Global National News uh, with Donna Friesen at 6.30. ET Canada with all the Oscar recap at 7 o'clock. Here, by the way, quickly, Brendan Fraser's uh, acceptance speech, accepting Best Actor for The Whale. I um, started in this business 30 years ago, and things they didn't come easily to me, but there, there was a facility that I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate at the time until it stopped. And I just want to say thank you for this acknowledgement because it couldn't be done without my cast. It's, it's, been like, it's been like I've been on a diving expedition on the bottom of the ocean and the air on the line to the surface is on a launch being watched over by some people in my life, like my sons Holden and Leland and Griffin and my best first mate, Jeannie. Thank you again, each one and all. Love the sound of it. That excited, that emotional. Uh, Amazing, amazing night. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. Insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, not just in or out this segment, um, but we'll also play the uh, audio from the red carpet last night featuring Hugh Grant being, um, as I say in Ferris Bueller, snooty, snotty with uh, a, a questioner, and we'll uh, we'll we'll give you our reads on uh, that on Hugh Grant doing so. But we ask for in or out this morning with uh, Gord Rennie. And a Vince Tedesco. Daylight savings time permanently. I hear all these news stories yesterday. All these politicians say, we have to make this permanent. We have to make this a thing. Well, let me be a strong capital O-U-T out. And Gordon Vince, I'll explain why. I like the change of season. I don't want it to be dark here at 8.30 in the morning. I did some research on this, Gordon. You'll be like, research? You? <laughs> but either way, either way, um, today we get 11 hours and uh, 18 minutes of daylight. In in the summer, no problem. June 20th is the longest day of the year. We get 15 hours and 26 minutes of daylight. But in December, on December 20th, that's the shortest day of the year. We get eight hours, 55 minutes, and 48 seconds. 
Now, if we were to back this up and have daylight savings time year round, sunset would be 5.43 p.m. Okay, that's better than 4.43 p.m. The sun would come up at 8.47 a.m. We'd have 13 minutes left in our esteemed show. Don't like. No like. I'm out on daylight savings time. I like the change. It tells me spring's coming, gives me something to look forward to. Who who can't adjust one hour of their life? Here, keep hearing. There's more car accidents or whatnot. Yeah. Don't drive. <laughs> yeah. But I'm out. You know what? Like, you do make a valid point about the in the morning. I mean, because our hours, it's no matter what hour you change it to, it's dark when we come in. And it's light when we leave. Some of our best hours, some of the best daylight hours are us napping. Yeah. Well, Not together. Yeah. Sometimes. So uh, every sum- other Wednesday, but whatever. Yeah. In the summertime, that helps, right? Because yeah. we, we don't, uh, you have a nap, you wake up, it's dark, you freak out. That's what happens to me. I wake up around <laughs> four and it's yeah, dark. And I, I think, know. I'm late for work. and But no, you're just having a nap. But the morning hours... But then you may as well sleep in a coffin. You're never awake when outside of driving home. You're never yeah. awake when the sun's I up. I know. I know. I mean, I could I could see both sides. This one's actually tricky for me. I, I don't have a, a definitive in or out. Well, I'll give you more time. Vince, in or out on daylight savings time year round. Maybe you think it's got some benefits. You like your afternoons better. You seem more like a like an evening guy than a morning guy, <laughs> although we're lucky to have you here. You seem more like a late night vampire type human being. What do you think? Well, my late night vampire days are over, but I'm definitely in on daylight savings time it's that uh it's that je ne sais quoi it's that thing to look forward to once a year or twice a year actually who doesn't want to be struggling with their you know oven uh, clock to try to reset the time or their coffee maker clock to try to reset the time again it keeps you on your toes it you gets struggle you moving. with the oven clock it's, resetting it's a it's a struggle what do you got is a it? clock from the 50s where it's like the old the old school wind it everything is digital now it's crazy these days to try to get on the right spot so so okay so you're out the question is daylight savings time permanently you're out correct and i'm out and gord I, let's go let's make it a clean sweep I'm out. I'm out. I didn't expect this, guys. I, yeah. really, You know, again, I, nobody supports me for just the sake of supporting me. It's been that way since I was born. Well, so I'm glad I was able to be convincing with my tribe. Yeah. I, I prepared like a trial lawyer for this. We <laughs> ask you at 416-870-6400. Nobody wants their life hanging on the balance based on my research. 416-870-6400. Are you in on daylight savings time permanently? Like leave it as it is right now all the way through the, the rest of eternity, because there are politicians that bring this up. Here's the other thing I'd say. You guys have traveled. Vince, when you go to New York, you get a really early sunrise. And if you go to Detroit, you get a really late sunset. So I I think it matters. You go to Montreal, the sun comes up way, way earlier, but it's going down way, way earlier. I'm talking about Toronto, and I'm saying I don't want the sun coming up at, at 840 in the morning two weeks before Christmas. I think it's too late. People are already on the go. Kids are waiting for school buses in the dark. When you have a city like Toronto, yeah, the hustle and bustle, people are already out and about moving around. So, yeah, just, you know, just keep things the way they are. Let's not try to, you know, reinvent the wheel here. It works. We're loving it. Keep it as it is. And I know it's frustrating. We lose an hour yesterday, but that hour you gain in the fall, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's kind of cool to sleep in. And all of a sudden when it's two o'clock, it's actually one o'clock. I don't, There's many Saturday nights when we all three of us were a lot younger. We'd wish that would be the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they, and they, they do it at 2 in the morning for a reason. Because you're sleeping. <laughs> you're sleeping. <laughs> you're sleeping. You wake up when you normally wake up on the weekend. Just because the clock says something different, it's all psychological. Yeah, they give that you the kind Sunday. of, I'm so tired. Give me a break.
Yeah, I, th- I think you guys have this right. Uh, all right, so four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred is the is the number uh, you can text us there. Let's get a listen if we can to uh, Hugh Grant on the red carpet uh, yesterday at the Oscars. He wasn't nominated for anything, but he was in the Knives Out Glass Onion movie. It's awkward. There's no doubt about it. He was interviewed by Ashley Graham. We'll let you hear the awkward exchange. It got around via social media. Hugh Grant just doesn't seem like he wants anything to do with it, but could the questions have been better? These are the questions that we um, are, are, are naturally bound to ask. Here's how it went. What are you most excited to see tonight? To see? Yeah, well, I know that you probably watched a few of the movies. Are you excited to see anybody win? Do you have your hopes up for anyone? Um, not, not, no, no one in particular. Okay, well, what are you wearing tonight then? Just my suit. Your suit? Who yeah. made your suit? You didn't make it. Um, I can't remember. My tailor. That's okay. Yeah. Ta- shout out to the tailor. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what does it feel like to be in Glass Onion? It was such an amazing film. I really loved it. I love a thriller. How fun is it to shoot something like that? Well, I'm barely in it. I'm in it for about three seconds. Yeah, but still, you showed up and you had fun, right? Uh, almost. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good ending uh, ending of the interview. Okay, hey. all right. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it doesn't happen terribly often, although I, I'm waiting for that sort of viral moment where the guest just wants no part of, of uh, Toronto today and uh, and my questions. <laughs> um, how do you? So it's a 50-50 split. I think people are like, Hugh Grant's wrong. He was a jerk. Don't stand in front of a microphone if you're not prepared to answer questions. But she and she botched the question. She's meant to say, who are you wearing? But she said, what are you wearing? And he said, my suit. That's a like Vince. He answered the damn question. Yeah, but that could also be a line with British humor. He was just being snarky. I mean, he's done a million of these. He was having some fun with it. Who knows? What I don't know if he was having fun. Did that sound like he was having fun? With <laughs> he was looking around. He just he didn't, he's just there for the goodie bag. Yeah, he, he he's there to present. And then he did come up on stage and then refer to himself as a scrotum, which I thought was a uh, oh I didn't know that turnabout. So it's like, guess <laughs> how accurate are you, Hugh? She also called him a veteran. Is that does that rub anybody the wrong way, Gord? Are you a, are you a radio veteran? Does that does think, that imply? I think an, so. Is that ageist? Are we all about the ists? Oh, I guess where that happens. It's the Oscars. If you watch any of those pre-shows, all those questions are the same. They ask them all the same questions. What is it like to be in this movie? What was the cast like? What are you wearing? You just go through the motions and you just say the things because that's what the whole thing is all about. I think she got it back on track because she actually asked about the movie he was in. But then yeah. by that point, maybe he's checked out yeah. and uh, and and doesn't want it. The only thing I thought of, and I said this to my wife and she was like, maybe, is did he think she thought he was Daniel Craig? I'm being serious about that. They're both British. They're both in the movie. Did he think, does she know actually who I am? That's the only thing I thought of to make him be like more of a jerk. He was jerky. There's no question about it. Well, um, that could be because his star is fading, Hugh. Oh, don't. Hugh, it's <laughs> fading. It's faded, you maybe. should be more uh, pleasant if you want to keep going. Yeah. But then, then they'll go- stop. They'll stop asking him questions. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the most awkward part of the night. That was uh, the, the guy dressed as a bear. Uh, bothering people up and down the uh, and and Jimmy Kimmel talking to the audience and the audience most of the people didn't were like yeah. please don't stop at my chair they all it never pays to sit in the first five rows at the <laughs> Academy Awards it never Dave Bradley is here the first five rows of the Academy Awards the first two rows of a six forty staff meeting 
It never pays to be in those rows. Yeah, you're sit right. Sit in the 12th row and back at the Academy Awards, sixth row and sit where Oakley sits. It's basically the best policy, Dave. It really is. Yeah, it's true. Sit where J.O. sits. <laughs> He's not going to get called on as often as you or me. And if you're behind him, you're good. You're, you're in safe. great shape. Oh, absolutely. You're in great shape.